Welcome to episode 66 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. Today's guest is Viracilla Buildromo. Viracilla is a Pacific feminist and political activist who co-leads the Urgent Action Fund for Women's Human Rights for Asia and the Pacific, which is a rapid grant-making facility to support female-identifying activists who need urgent assistance. Prior to joining the Urgent Action Fund, Viracilla was at the helm of the Fiji women's rights movement for 14 years. Viracilla recently presented at the Australasian Aid Conference on the topic of donor funding for women and girls throughout the Pacific. She also appeared on Q&A in November 2019 alongside former guests of this program, Minister for International Development and the Pacific Alex Hawke, and the Honourable NLA Sopawaga, former Prime Minister of Tuvalu. In this episode, Virasila and I discuss human rights in Fiji and whether climate change is used to deflect scrutiny away from other issues, including the treatment of women, girls and marginalised groups. There is very little media coverage of human rights issues in Pacific Island countries, in particular in Fiji. Rather, when we discuss matters affecting Pacific Islands, we almost exclusively discuss climate change. But climate change is a vulnerability multiplier, meaning any social issues that already exist will only be made worse as the climate crisis intensifies. In the case of Fiji, this is a worsening of the situation of women and girls. But Virasila and her colleagues tackle the issue every day, and most recently published a paper on why donors are giving so little to women's organisations in the region, and why the same organisations are struggling to manage the stringent accountability requirements of donors but the money is urgently needed, as you'll hear in this episode. We also discuss conflicting notions of feminism, the fake news epidemic, and imposter syndrome, plus ways to create platforms that allow other people to speak their truth, in particular non-English-speaking women in the region. This is an important episode and will shine a light on some heavy issues that require more reporting. I know we're only skimming the surface, but I'm eager to share these insights with you and spark an important conversation. Before we go, we have a really important announcement to make. You will have heard me say at the outset of this episode that Goodwill Hunters was being presented from the Development Policy Centre. Many of you would know that the Development Policy Centre is in the Crawford School of Public Policy in the Australian National University. It's a leading global think tank supporting the international development community by undertaking research and promoting practical initiatives to improve the effectiveness of Australian aid and contribute to better global development policy. We're so excited to be entering into this partnership to further strengthen dialogue and research on aid and development in Australia and give more voice to experts from throughout the region. You'll be hearing more about the partnership and the Development Policy Centre in the coming weeks and I welcome your input on how we can continue to be the leading media platform dedicated to aid and development globally. Enjoy the episode. Okay, good afternoon, Virasila. Thank you so much for being on the Goodwill Hunters podcast. Hi, thank you for um, inviting me. And you mentioned this this is your first podcast, which is so exciting. Yeah, it is my first podcast. (laughs) I've always wanted to do a podcast, so... Yeah, it's a good one to be interviewed, so I know what it feels like. Oh, good, good. Okay, so we are at the Australasian Aid Conference. Um, Today is the first day of the conference, but it's kind of formally kicking off tomorrow. Um, But you've already given your talk, which I just attended. So I'm really looking forward to chatting to you about that and and covering a a whole lot of other topics. And I think our listeners would probably remember you most recently uh, for being on Q&A. Uh, with our uh, Minister for International Development and the Pacific, Alex Hawke. So I think we'll start with that. On that Q&A episode, you said that the climate crisis was the biggest threat to the Pacific. 
and that collaboration is the key to survival. What did you mean by that? What I meant was that uh, all of us in the Pacific, um, including governments, the citizens, uh, need to work together to be able to um, fight against climate change or the climate, climate crisis, because it's no longer change. It has already changed, so it's now a crisis. And I think that we, we need to join hands and work together, And which means, for me, uh, that means that the, for the Australian government, they really, as, um, as a partner, as a part of the Pacific, um, as, someone, as, an, as a country that has recently invested in their program, which is Rise Up, that they really should be not only investing into you know, climate adaptation um, programs, but they should also be looking at ways in which they can minimize their carbon emissions. Because the reality is in our region, in, in which the Australia sits in, they are the largest emitter of carbon. And I think that, and this is what I mean about collaboration, that yes, it's great that you're investing in here, into our region to help, to work with us, to find local solutions uh, towards the, cli the climate crisis. But you also, um, uh, as a key member of the region, need to cut your carbon emissions, as well as the export of coal, which leads to more carbon dioxide in the, in the atmosphere. So, so for me, that is key to uh, about collaboration. Is I mean, is that the most important contribution that Australia can make at this stage to reduce our carbon emissions and reduce our export of coal? Or is there another way that Australia can contribute? I think that, you know, according to uh, scientific research, this is a key way for them to be able to contribute um, uh, to uh, the climate crisis, the fight against the climate crisis. Um, and, it's a, and, it, and it requires political uh, will to do this. Having said that, it's not an either-or situation for me. I mean, collaboration is, is that how can we do both um, and how can we collectively um, support local solutions but also at the same time change your habits or change, you know, change the way, um, yeah, change your practices so that you're not contributing to a problem that is resulting in the extinction of people and a region. Yeah, that's a really powerful message. And that certainly came through quite heavily on, on your episode of Q&A. I think the interesting thing is that when we're talking about the Pacific, the first thing that we talk about now is climate change. So that was evidenced on Q&A. It's evidence that, you know, so many of the, the events that we go to on and what we hear on TV and, and in, in radio and everything is that the Pacific and climate change have now become synonymous with one another. And what that's done is effectively uh, eliminated a lot of other dialogue and critique of Pacific Island governments, because all we really talk about is climate change. So I guess uh, the question there then is, do you think Pacific Island leaders sometimes use climate change to deflect attention and scrutiny away from their own shortcomings as governments? Yeah, I do. Th I, I do think that. I, I mean, I think that a lot of uh, Pacific governments are great advocates and leaders for um, for combating uh, or, or for raising the uh, for raising the issue of climate crisis globally. So I think they do some great work in there. But they all. But it also means that they do. If, for example, in Fiji, our Prime Minister isn't 
excellent um, advocate on climate crisis. But it has meant that he's not paying much attention to the human rights violations that is happening in his own country. Um, and what's interesting is, is that when you're looking at the, at the prism of the, so for example, is you know, human rights violations are continuing in Fiji, even though we have an elected government. Women, are the, the you know, the levels of violence against women continues to rise. One in three women is um, is as the statistics. Um, when you look at that through the prism of the climate crisis, it means that those issues like violence, the low levels of women in participation, the low, the, the ability of women to be able to um, uh, uh, have say in, in, in government and so forth, is further um, minimized because their first response is just trying to deal with the impact of climate crisis. So it means that it puts more pressure on families, therefore women get, you know, women and families get more violence. It's a vicious cycle. So yes, climate crisis is a huge issue. We are at the forefront of it, but it also means that all the other issues that were present before are worse off because of this current um, crisis. So it just exacerbates the, um, the uh, how do you say, the precarious situation that women sit in in the Pacific. Yeah, that's, that's a brilliant answer. And, and, I, and it reminds me of how I think it's been said that climate change is a vulnerability multiplier. So yes. any vulnerabilities that already existed are only going to be worsened with climate that's change. Right. Yes, exactly. Now, you have been a high-profile advocate for human rights in Fiji for a very long time. Um, you spoke out against the 2006 coup and called the interim government illegal. The same government is in power today, though there have been elections, and as you said, they are a democratically elected government and yet human rights violations continue. Do you think the human rights situation is improving in Fiji, at least since 2006? No. The short answer, I think, no, the human rights situation in Fiji is not improving. Um, uh, but yes, as our minister said on Kirinwe to me, they have put in place certain, uh, they put in place laws and policies which are, for example, combating the issue, say, of violence against women. That is that is correct. Um, and it is their government that um, enacted that piece of law. Um, but one of the, you know, the, the irony is they were only able to enact that piece of legislation because they were not in government. There was not a parliament. Therefore, it was a decree that then became legislation when parliament came in. So the political will that he was speaking of is a political will which he usurped, which they usurped from, a, you know, from, from the people who voted in the previous government, right? So the... So I, I find it really interesting that, you know, when, when, when those in government talk about how they, these certain laws that they put in place, which is true, but a lot of those laws, as I said on Q&A, were advanced and, you know, uh, and advocated for by women's rights organisation and feminists for more than 30 years. And over four governments who were, two of them were usurped along the way, right? And all, literally all they did was get it legislated. Um, so I, you know, I, I think that that's great, but the impact of that on women on the ground being able to access justice, the number of the, the levels of violence in diminishing, the um, education being able to address toxic masculinity, um, looking at gender and social norms, education system, those sort of things 
are not, very little investment are being made in that area. And as a result of that, it has meant that the violations are not only happening by individuals, but it's also happening by the state because these rights, which should be uh, asserted or should be through these laws, aren't because the government is just not investing money into those areas. So would you say the government is complicit in the human rights abuses or are they actively perpetrating them? I think that I think that they're doing both. I think they're both... Some, I feel that some agencies are complicit. It's unintentional. But I also think that some agencies are perpetrating human rights violations. I mean, you know, the police, those, the levels of police brutality are extremely high. That's, uh, that is direct violation that is occurring um, by a state party, uh, you know, by a state institution, which is mandated to protect and, um, or, yeah, to, to protect law and order in the country. And they're violating that. So I think it's a bit of both. I mean, it's so interesting to hear you say that because uh, to come back to our earlier point, we don't get that sort of information here. Yes, and I think that that's one of the um, I think that that's one of the biggest violations that we're seeing is the you know uh, the freedom of the press or the media, um, or traditional media, I would say is still heavily censored. Uh, you know, we still we continue to have institutions which are which have draconian laws which does not create the environment for people to speak um, to speak freely. Um, and, and it also means that media organizations are not um, publicizing or are not publishing any news that may be seen to be um, controversial because they don't want to get dragged to court because it has happened several times. Um, having said that, in that uh, in that shrinking space, you know, the shrinking media space, it has meant that innovation or that that there's new kinds of media is emerging, well, like social media. So there's more uh, what you would call citizen reporters um, that are out there that are reporting on what they're seeing, the violations that they're seeing. And I think that's great because it's encouraging some level of discourse and of what is actually happening in the country. But what it has also meant is that we have a whole generation of people and citizens in the country who have, who find it difficult to be able to debate an issue without personalizing it. And it's because of the way social media is set up. And, um, and, I, and I think that this is sad because those, which means that people are not able to make informed decisions that are based on facts and that are based, you know, that, yeah. So, at the, so, so there's a lot of slandering, there's a lot of personal attacks that are happening. Um, and also there are a lot of trolling that occurs. And so this, a discourse that would generally happen in a, in a democratic space. That's not necessarily happening in Fiji. And I also recognise that, you know, this issue is also happening everywhere else. It's not very specific to Fiji. Um, but, and again, this is a mere observation on my part, but when you've been, uh, when you have a country that has been silenced 
for almost 20, 20 years, for almost 20 years, you have a whole generation of people who, who have, don't have the skills or, or don't have the experience to be able to debate, to understand how to have this, dis, you know, to have this sort of discourse. So there's a lot of, there's a whole culture that has changed around this. And it's going to take a long time to unlearn that behavior um, to, to a point where it's almost toxic, this 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 sort of um, this sort of silencing, uh, marginalising of voices. Uh, uh, you say that you, you recognise that Fiji is not the only country that's experiencing this, and in a lot of my conversations in the Pacific over the last few months, we've talked a lot about fake news yeah. and how there is this problem of uh, completely untrue news stories being circulated on social media. Um, there have been some really horrific consequences of that in PNG. I don't know so much about it in Fiji, but especially in recent weeks with coronavirus yeah. and a lot of misreporting. Yeah. Um, how do we simultaneously increase press freedoms and encourage marginalised groups to speak up and be vocal whilst also combating this rise of fake news? You know, I, I, I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer for that. But I do think that uh, I, I do think that we need to surface this more because it, it, it is an issue. And I, and I sometimes I feel like these sort of conversations are happening in the corridors or when, you know, like it's it's not being discussed at a at a political level or at a level where they, that it can where they can where some change can happen but what i also recognize is and i uh, what i also recognize is that sometimes these sort of conversations then open up other conversations which is about restriction and which is about monitoring you know so there's, so I can understand why they're kind of happening in the margins and, and there's a danger of bringing it to the centre because of the possibilities of, you know, we should monitor emails, you know, all these sort of things which you don't really want to happen. Yeah, so I, I, I don't really know, but I do think that we have to start somewhere and I do think that uh, we have to think about yeah, how, how, do, how do we manage this issue of um, fake news? Yeah. 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 It is. It's a really tricky one. I'd be really interested to hear if any of our listeners have had experience with this or, or thoughts on this because it is such a difficult uh, tightrope to balance between wanting to promote marginalised voices and wanting to bring as many people into the discussion as we can whilst at the same time wanting some level of integrity and truth yeah. in what people are hearing and yeah. absorbing. Yeah. And and and, particu and particularly when a lot of the media organizations are owned by, you know, very conservative right-wing people who have who influence a huge you know, sometimes some of this stuff is coming from that, you know, that, that narrative is coming from that um, from that side. So again, you know, who has the convening power to to create that space and 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 uh, and to have that conversation in a way that is safe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that gets to the heart of why I love podcasts so much. Um, now, to change the subject slightly, you're, you're here at the Australasian Aid Conference to help launch a report which is titled Where is the Money for Women and Girls in the Pacific? And as I said, I just went to your talk earlier. And um, of course, the main point of the report is that despite the concern of donors for women and girls, 
And despite donors being very vocal about it, very little money is actually reaching local or national women's groups in the region, according to the report, only 1% of all grants. Why is that? And what should be done about it? I think, I mean, there, there's several reasons. Um, and some of it, you know, there's some, some of the reasons are related to geography. We're just such a huge um, region uh, over a span of the largest ocean in the world. So many diverse cultures, the issue, so, the, so it's not a one-size-fit-all. But I think some of the, to me, the main, uh, the, one of the main reasons I think that very little money is getting into the hands of the change, ma- of change makers who are women and girls and trans is because a lot of these priorities are being set by the funder. So the funder decides what their pr- area of priority is and they will only fund uh, groups and individuals who work in the area of priority. So that's that's problematic for us. And it's problematic because it means that the, uh, the vision for change in the region is not being uh, decided by those who live in it. So I think that that's a huge problem. Um, and I think the, the other reason as well is that the... the, the Large institutions like DFAT, MFAT, the you know, New Zealand government or the British, or they all have um, ve- you know, various layers of bureaucracy and due diligence, which is understandable. You know, it's, it's, it's the public's money and they need, they're accountable for it. So those accountability mechanisms which are in place for, say, for example, like a $500 million development project to build a bridge, say, in Fiji versus a $2,000 project for a leadership program, say, for girls in Nauru, the same accountability mechanism applies. And so, of course, those groups spend most of their time just filling out these forms and meeting the needs of the of the funder and not actually doing the work that they're supposed to do. So it's it's a challenging um, situation, which is why this we, we're very, in, in, in the report, we have four recommendations and the four recommendations range from implementing um, OCD recommendations, which is basically looking how donor support can be increased to Southern Women's Rights Organization. Um, the third uh, finding was around improving the transparency of funding data. There's a lot of data out there. That data is not um, accessible to everybody. Uh, I mean, you know, particularly people living with disability. So when you don't have that data, it's very hard for you to make informed decisions about the work that you do and how you can get resources for that. And then the second one is really looking at how do we create spaces so that more of these conversations can happen and bring into the table um, uh, communities and groups who don't have the power to be at those spaces. And then the last one is really, which is what we're really pushing for, is the establishment of a Pacific feminist fund, a fund that is led by Pacific women, a Pacific feminist, and will be based in the region, um, a fund that has the vision of um, becoming sustainable uh, over a certain period of time because we are looking at establishing a fund that has a grant-making arm, that is providing grants to communities, 
as well as uh, what we call an investment arm. So it's looking at ways to mobilize resources, either through investments, through philanthropy, um, through grants, um, to be able to um, then, you know, support the, 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 the work of women's rights organizations in the Pacific. And that investment arm is critical because with that investment arm, the specific women can decide, will be able to have their priorita- priorities amplified and their priorities resourced and not the priorities of donors. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it was interesting to hear about the Pacific Feminist Fund earlier. And I guess what I get from all that is this is really about putting power back into the hands of the people that are actually experiencing the problems that we're trying to solve. That's right. It's redistributing the power, yeah, the power of money. Yes, the power of money. And and as you said there, you know, we in the charitable sector in Australia talk a lot about how difficult the accountability standards are for us, you know, and our sector consists of a lot of massive organisations who probably do have the internal capabilities to manage it. But as you say, that is so hard for a local organisation that might be staffed by four people to, to match those um, those accountability requirements. The other part of this is, is looking at uh, the voice of women in the Pacific. Um, and, and in your blog, um, in the run-up to this conference, you wrote about the silent P in Asia-Pacific and the need for Pacific women to find, in your own words, our own Pacific voice. Now, is that lack of voice, do you blame that on donors or does it just reflect the reality that the Pacific is a very diverse and, and often disparate region and it is hard to find a united voice? I don't think the voice has to be united. I think that the voice... I just think that we need to... The, the, the silent B is because we as a... a um, as a, you know, let's just focus on the, say, the feminist movement, right? So in the so the UN clumps us together as Asia Pacific, as if and, and one of the things I always say is there is no such region as Asia Pacific. There is Latin America, there is Africa. There's no such thing as Asia Pacific. It's not. There's like two specific regions. So one of the one of the things that we did at at, at Urgent Action Fund was very clear in our name. We said that we are the Urgent Action Fund for Women's Human Rights for Asia and the Pacific, right? And I'm, we're very, we're, you know, for us, it's, a, it's, a, it's political for us to put that and in there and to always point out the fact that we are two regions that have two distinct, uh, two distinct cultures and two distinct ways of working. Now, the issue of why the voices of women are not, uh, from our of feminists are not being heard, I think that one is... We've been socialized. I think to, to an extent, there's, you know, some of us have been socialized to believe that we don't have anything of meaning that anything that matters and, and, and it should be publicized. I think that's one one issue. I think also that those there there are those who have a lot to say, but um, those in power don't like what they're saying, so they don't want to amplify it, right? So they don't give them resources. And I think um, the third one, which is the main one, is the fact that in, there's an assumption that you have to raise your voice only in English. Like English is the language. And the thing is, is that not, not all of us in the Pacific speak English. And what we're trying to do and we're trying to encourage, um, like even within our own fund, is we 
say to activists, you apply to us in any language that you want. Whatever you're comfortable in, you apply to us in that language, and it is our responsibility as the funder to, to get that translated, and we will bear that cost for you. So it's that, it's that same thing. I think that, um, like I encourage you to say, interview a woman from the Pacific who speaks, say, for example, Nivan or another language, and then find, because they have very interesting stories, and then finding someone to be able to translate that um, into English and having those stories heard. So those sort of things, I think, that needs to be, we need to be creative about making those um uh, spaces accessible to have our voices heard and also for us in the Pacific and I'm encouraging anyone who's from the Pacific to set up podcasts like this you know, um, or start writing blogs I mean it's, it's, it's interesting I mean that blog that we wrote I really struggled with it and I, I write a lot of reports and you think it should have come easy to me but I really struggled with it um, and also it, it comes from that, I, that thing that I said before you just don't think you're good enough. You don't think that what you have to say matters. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that it's, I mean, even today when I was speaking on that panel and saying the things that I was saying, in my head, that this, my little voice was saying, do they really care what I'm listening? You know, like I was, I was just sort of putting myself down, but it, it does happen, even, even for loud activist feminists like me too. Yeah, I love that you said that. I so often um, in, in my career have conversations with, you know, other women at similar stages in their career who talk about the imposter syndrome. That yes, they that's me. I always feel like an imposter. <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's this questioning of, well, is my voice valid in this conversation, and do I actually need to speak up? And unfortunately you know, it does seem to be quite a gendered thing. You hear of so many more women questioning if they have a, a valuable contribution Guys to make. Guys don't seem to have this problem. I mean, I've not heard of many. <laughs> <laughs> um, any male listeners who have that problem, please get in touch. Um, but, you know, I really like the point that you made there that, yes, let's get Pacific Islanders making podcasts. Yeah, I think I think we should. Yeah, definitely. I'd love to see that. And maybe I mean, maybe I should get. We should. My own organisation should start putting out these podcasts. Yeah, mm, yeah, absolutely. I think that you know we all have a responsibility to create platforms that allow other people to tell their story rather than telling a story for them. Yeah. Um, and that's certainly why I'm such a fan of of podcasts because it's a long interview where someone gets to speak candidly. Yeah. Actually, just that, that point, I mean, that's something that we at the Urgent Action Fund struggle with, right? As a fund, you're always, um, you always, you, you have to justify your existence. So there is this tension about how do you talk about your work without being extractive, like without claiming the contribution of the the group or the individual that you have provided funds to. So we really struggled with that. So we collectively came to a decision to say, no, that's not us. What we're going, what we're going to be is we're going to be a platform where defenders and activists can use us to amplify their voices. So that's a very good um, that's that, so I think that this podcast is a good way to do it because it'll be a platform, as you're saying, to um, make sure that those stories and the and the activist is telling the story and not us telling on, telling their story on 
You know what I mean? Like yeah, telling their absolutely. story. So it's, be, it's powerful. And I think that feeds into the politics of what we are trying to do. So yeah. thank you for that. Yeah, good. <laughs> I'm excited. I can't, I can't wait to see what happens. Um, okay. So I, I guess the other element of the conversation about um, women and, and um, women's experiences in Fiji and the Pacific, um, nearly said Fiji there, which would be an interesting, <laughs> interesting country, um, is, is, of course, domestic violence and, and gender-based violence. And now you made a quote on Q&A, and I remember hearing it, and it was one of those statements where you kind of go, oh, my gosh, like, yes. And it was, I'm a feminist and I work in women's rights and there's an assumption that I should solve domestic violence. And I would say the same is so true of Australia, that the onus for solving domestic violence seems so often to be on women and women's organisations. Um, you've been working on the issue for a really long time. So I'm interested, uh, the Fiji Women's Crisis Centre has been around for around 30 years to address the problem of domestic violence. Do you think that in Fiji progress is being made um, on the issue of violence against women? No, definitely. I definitely think there is uh, progress that's being made. I mean, the issue is being discussed on social media. It's being, um, there are marches. You, you wouldn't have seen this 20, 30 years ago, right? So I think there's a lot of, a lot, the awareness of the issue has definitely, um, uh, has increased. There are a lot more crisis centres and the Fiji Women's Crisis Centre is not the only organisation that's working in this area anymore. So the ecosystem of support for violence against women has has broadened. It's more diversified. You have religious organisations providing that support. You have... Um, Men, you know, being advocates against violence against women, and and taking a lot of that guidance from the feminist leadership of the Fiji Women's Crisis Centre. So I think that's really that's really important, and that's a gain. But having said that, I think the issue of violence in our region continues to uh, get worse, and. You and 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 it's and it's also evolved the kinds of violence. So you know, 20, 30 years ago, um, the bullying and trolling uh, that you would have had on online, where you know, I was just reading about guys who sent nude pictures of their girlfriends when they break ups, like revenge. They call it revenge pornography or something, right? I mean, that's a form of violence. And there is an increase in this. There's a lot of there's an increase on pornography that's being circulated on online. So while while a lot of the strategies that are in place are trying to respond to the current situation, to the current types of violence that are being um, that are that are being how do you say that being impacted by women new types of violence uh, are emerging. And, and it means that we need to have new ways of um, responding to them. And I think that the crisis centre does a lot, I mean, the crisis centre has been doing a lot of work in this area and they've done a, little, a lot of research in this area. But they also, they continue to need support and different types of people helping them um, look at this new terrain of violence that's that's kind of emerging and, and to figure out how we can respond to it a lot more um, effectively. Yeah, emerging forms of violence is so interesting. I mean, yes, the epidemic of 
revenge porn also exists in Australia and perhaps it has for a little bit longer. Um, but I, I think it, as you were talking there, I'm, I'm thinking we in Australia kind of have our own uh, feminist interpretations of things like that and there'd be some popular feminist rhetorics that would kind of go around. Like not that we have a united style of feminism, mm-hmm. but there is dominant forms of feminism. And I wonder, in Fiji, how do you think feminism manifests differently to a more Australian or kind of a, a sort, of, sort of how is feminism cultured? That's an interesting question. Um, I'm uh, My personal belief is that, well, I, I think that my, feminism is both a personal and it's a political thing. And everybody is experiencing their journey in different ways and how that manifests. And it is not a way of, for me, it's both, yeah, it's not, it, it just doesn't happen overnight. It's not like if you do A, B, C, and D, you automatically get the gold star of being a feminist. I don't think that that's the way, for me, feminist feminism should be. But I do think that uh, at fundamentally, for you to be to call yourself a feminist, to identify a feminist, you have to have the belief and the commitment to um, uh, to, to to recognize that the injustice that has been that has been perpetuated against women uh, and girls and trans people, and find how we can um, create a world where everybody is respected, but also recognizing that there are levels of that a lot of that a lot of the violations or or the discrimination we're experiencing is historical. And a lot of it is also um, inherent and you can't uh, that, that, it, that it will take time to try and address it. And all of us are impacted by patriarchy, right? It's not, even as feminists, we are, patri- we are impacted by patriarchy. And change isn't going to happen very quickly. And I think that the one thing I, I like to see is that try and, dis- try and encourage discourse. Like one of the things I, I follow on Twitter and I see a lot of debate that happens with Australians and I see this debate between what they call white Australian feminists versus um, indigenous women feminists um, and there's a lot of articles and, and that kind of thing happens in Fiji but it's more about uh, it's more a, more, more a class issue, right? It's about oh, you're educated young women who live in Suva, you're feminist versus the rural... So these, I, I, I think it's important that, that this, the more, that there are different types of feminism and that I think we need to encourage feminism that we all have the same goal, but we are maybe coming at it from different perspectives. And I think it's really important to listen to what people are saying and not to be so reactive. Um, and also at the same time to be able to take criticism and and hear what others are saying as well you know like I don't think we all have the answer like I don't like this thing that I've just seen recently and and I and I have to say I see it happens a lot on um on uh, on Instagram uh, not on Instagram on Twitter is this cancel kind of um, mentality right someone says like they're a great feminist and just because they said something they automatically get cancelled you know it's like I think we have to I always tell myself this. This is what I tell myself. He said, all feminists are flawed human beings, right? And that 
some days we will F up, you know, and some days we'll be brilliant. And that all of that lives in this one body, right? And, and I think it's important to understand that and to see everybody like that rather than this ideal that this is what a feminist should look like. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, that's... I, I don't know if I really answered the question, but that I struggle with it, and, I, and, and, and these are some of the things I try and reassure myself because I don't really have the answer for it. No, those are really valuable reflections on feminism. I think I took from that uh, the importance of intersectionality and recognising that we all experience feminism differently because we all experience um, our gender differently um, and, and that, that can very much be viewed through the prism of all the other social, cultural, economic factors that that shape our life. And then also, of course, as you say, the importance of tolerance and of recognising that this cancel culture only excludes voices from the conversation. And right now we don't need to be excluding people. Yeah. Really valuable reflections. It's been so brilliant to chat to you. Um, Any parting words, anything that you'd like our listeners to check out? No, except thank you very much for having me here and uh, stay tuned. I, I think I'm going. I'm definitely going to talk to my communications team to see how we can get our own podcast and you can hear the stories of Pacific feminists. I'm so excited about that idea. All right. Thank you so much. Thank Marisilla. you. That's it for episode 66 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and today's guest was, of course, Virasila Buadromo from the Urgent Action Fund for Women's Human Rights for Asia and the Pacific. In the show notes, you'll find links to some of the organisations we've discussed in this episode. Keep an eye on our social media for the announcement of next week's guest, and as always, please get in touch with me via our website with any comments, questions, suggestions, or anything else. We're thrilled to have you in the Goodwill Hunters community. See you next week. <laughs>